they really need to look at the harm that this law is doing overall and then think about harm reduction, right? If they're harming well over 200,000 people a year by making care inaccessible, that, that harm is, is far greater than what they're gonna gain by filing the reports. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. did it again that's two in a row no hiccups no hiccups <laughs> it's good to be hiccup free in our technical glitch free studio man maybe we just need to be in the same room together yeah welcome back listening audience thank you for joining us thank you for downloading our content don't forget to share it around give us a rating and review that kind of thing before you listen you're just you i was just waiting to make it awkward <laughs> it's always awkward <laughs> We are joined by Sandy Richardson. Hello, Sandy. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys? We're good. Um, you've been here before. You were a victim of the New York Safe Act, and it's very improper usage upon you. And over the last several months since we've last spoken, you have unearthed some information, and you're going to share that with us. It's alarming. Um, we are trying to get people into mental health services without fear of restriction and without uh, policy interventions. We're trying to bridge the gap between firearms ownership and mental health care. And unfortunately, we keep hearing stories like yours, which almost undermine our efforts, you know, because we're trying to be like, hey, no, counseling's cool. Go get counseling. Uh, And then here comes Sandy. Here comes Isaac Ritchie. And they're like, no, we don't trust these people. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're you know, they're both in New York, which you know maybe we can isolate it to that state, but still a problem. So, tell us about yourself a little bit and reintroduce yourself to the audience, if you would please. Yes, absolutely, and I will say, yes, New York has a big problem regarding mental health care and guns, and and we'll get into that more. Um, so, so who am I? Um, I am a whole human being. I wear many, many hats. I'm a, I'm a worker, I'm a colleague, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a you know, friend. Um, and I'm a person who was the subject of a false report under New York State's Safe Act Mental Hygiene Law 9.46. Um, fortunately, um, I did get my rights back, and I'll explain that in a minute. But, you know, as far as who I am, um, I'm a hunter. My husband and I hunt together often. Sometimes he goes without me too, uh, which is fine. And we're hunters for food, you know, less so for trophy, more so for food. Everybody has their own reasons, which is, which is fine. Um, I I don't remember what else was on my, my list the last time I was on the podcast, but it was podcast 43 for anybody who wants to go back and listen to it. Good call. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, I'm not here 
to try and convince people not to seek mental health care. I'm here because I believe everyone should be comfortable seeking mental health care when they feel they need it. And the only way we're going to get there is to eliminate barriers to care, such as the SAFE Act, Mental Hygiene Law 9.46, such as the red flag laws. You know, the uh, New York is also problematic in the way that it does NICS reporting. Um, the, the digging that I've done to find information hasn't gone truly down that path so much, uh, but the podcast by Isaac Ritchie gets into it a little bit. Um, you know, they're reporting stuff that doesn't belong in the database right. uh, to NICS. And it's, it's getting put through into the federal database when it has no business being there because they're not being careful as to what they're passing on. And I, I personally believe that's purposeful. I believe that it's the state's intent to try and eliminate firearms in the state. And that's another thing we're not going to get into in this podcast because it's not really the topic, but you can see it in the most recent gun laws that they, you know, put out. It was a, a knee-jerk reaction to the Supreme Court's ruling um, that was put forth without much thought, without the input of stakeholders or experts. Um, and therefore, it's problematic, and there are a lot of challenges. You know, the, it's the same way that New York State passed the law, the Safe Act law, to begin with. It was a knee-jerk reaction um, to a very unfortunate, you know, shooting. The whole circumstance that happened right there, and they did not have the experts in the fields or the stakeholders' input into that law, and that's why the Safe Act is a problem. Yeah, I but wanna, go ahead. Uh, basically, I'm really focusing, you know, what, what I'm looking into, I'm, I'm focusing on the mental hygiene law 9.46, which is part of the Safe Act. That's really what I've been looking at, not all the other aspects of the ne nefarious gun laws that New York State has passed. Yeah, there's there's a lot to cover there, and I, I appreciate you refining it to just today's topic, um, because the, we could have a whole rabbit trail discussion about the why behind this and how logically it the, the why doesn't align with statistics or any other evidence that we have that suggests that any of these interventions actually work but that's a different topic for a different day what we want to focus on today is the care inhibitions or the barriers to care that you reference um and we'll get into a paper that you you forwarded along too is there's a publication in the the journal uh, psychiatric quarterly i believe it was and yep. we'll talk about a survey that was conducted that uh, i have i've found fault with but let's start with some language that you used earlier you said a false report and i think it's really important to, to highlight that explain what yep. you mean because that sounds very loaded um it is in fact a fact that the report that was filed against me when I sought care for being stressed was a false report. The ICD code, the billable code for that visit was acute stress reaction. And that is not something that I've stated in other um, podcasts or articles that I have written about this or that were written about me. My, my memory it, of that, by I the was, way, was, was that it was coming off the heels of lockdowns and COVID pandemic nonsense and yes. all the fear and, all, and it was just like there was a, yes. there was also some other moving parts in your life and it was just like you got overwhelmed 
and you sought help, which is what we want people to do, right? And that's okay. exactly the case. Literally, I hadn't slept in days at all. Um, I was having trouble eating and I was just feeling very upset, right? And so this was a situation where I did, I said, okay, I need to talk to somebody to help me sort of sift through this and get to a place where I'm sleeping and eating again. Um, it was interfering with my ability to function. And that's the point at which we need to feel comfortable seeking care. So I called around to a couple of just, you know, local counseling places and couldn't get an appointment for weeks. And given the circumstances, weeks was not, it was not a viable option, right? Yeah. I couldn't continue not sleeping and eating for weeks until I could get an appointment. So I went to the only place where it was available, which is a drop-in like crisis center. Only place you could get somebody to talk to then. Um, it was 100% the right decision on my part. Would I ever do it again? Absolutely not. Because of what happened. So what I did was 100% right. What they did was 500% wrong. That's 600% okay. if you're keeping score at home. <laughs> okay. So, so I was stressed, point blank. That was the billable ICD code. That's what happened. I was seeking to rectify the symptoms that were interfering with my ability to function. They did nothing to help me with that. Zero. That's what I will say straight up. But what they did do was... They decided that since, yes, I was honest and told them I owned a gun, that's another thing I would never do again. I would never tell any healthcare provider that I own firearms. Which is unfortunate because that is, uh, is significant to the information that we glean from people when we interview them and we mm -hmm. conduct our hopefully very thorough biopsychosocial interview. We want to know what your hobbies are what your interests are, because it's, it's not about harm reduction per se all the time. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we want to know that you're storing improperly and then we can coach you into storing properly. If your uh, teenager is, you know, having a bad day, an or action something, plan, right? an action plan. Right. But, but moreover, I want, I want practitioners to know what your, uh, what your protective factors are. And that's a term we use in like suicide prevention or even mental health uh, wellness uh, promotion is to say, what do you enjoy? What do you like? What gets you up in the morning? What gets your juices flowing? Um, and if hunting, shooting, competitive shooting, uh, or just uh, polishing your guns is your thing, I will prescribe that to you because I know that it helps you get well. And if I don't know that because you've self-censored in your intake interview um, or your hackles got up because we inappropriately used language that was off-putting i don't know what best to prescribe you to help you get well so we don't want people self-censoring for any reason but unfortunately our profession's been very good at creating all sorts of reasons that people self-censor and it's not just firearms there's there's all sorts of cultural issues that we end up being incompetent in and then fumble our, with our language because we ourselves are uncomfortable and then it, it ends up being an inhibition to care that, that we talked about earlier so I'm, I'm glad that you said that. It disappoints me that that's the outcome. Um, but on with the story. Actually, before we go on with the story, I want to uh, explain some ling lingo you used there. The listening audience may not be familiar. So ICD, you heard Sandy say, the ICD code. ICD is an acronym for International Classification of Disease. It's a big, giant book that doctors use. 
And in that book, you have codes associated with diagnoses. So uh, spotty liver has a diagnostic code. It's the, the, it's the ICD is the book. Um, your rheumatoid arthritis has a code. And there's all these codes. Now, I operate from a book called the DSM, which is another uh, diagnostic and statistical manual. I'll hold this up for the, the YouTube audience. Um, and it's a big, thick book that has mental disorders in it. So it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that's the DSM, of mental disorders, currently on its fifth iteration. And it's also got codes. And what she says, these it's a billable code, right? So what that means is that on the claim form that my agency, my staff, send off to your insurance company, I have to put this code on that says what it is that I'm treating along with another code that says how I'm treating it. So there's an intervention that gets billed and the target that we want to cure along the way. So when she says acute stress uh, reaction or, or what was it? It's not disorder. It was acute stress. Reaction. Yeah, yeah reaction. I okay. Yeah, I think that's what I was saying. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the problem area, in other words. That's the thing that the doctor wants to fix, for example. So we send that yeah. off to your insurance company. And we can't bill for things that aren't in the book. That's the, that's the key, right? So mm-hmm. we, we want to know that going forward. And I just want to clear up the lingo. Feel free to you know email us if you want more clarification on that. But I don't want to take up too much time on my own thing. Sandy, please proceed. <laughs> yes. And, and for anybody who's interested, you can actually look up ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-CM codes online. You can look mm-hmm. them up. There's interactive lookup. It's a quick so Google search, can, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So where was I? Um so at that story, right. You, so you won't, you won't, you won't tell people that you have guns again. If you go oh yeah. That's oh gosh, no, no. And, and I would recommend for well, anyone in the state knows. of New York, for anyone in the state of New York, New York, they should not be telling their providers they have guns because the state of New York has created, they have created a space where healthcare providers are being asked or I shouldn't say asked, they're being required by the state under the guise of protecting people from harm to report things to the state um, that strip you of your rights. And I guess we're going to get into that piece about the rights a little bit later. But the guise of protecting from harm. So under this reporting, they're basically trying to say if somebody has suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation, fill out this, uh, you know, MHL 9.46 report under the SAFE Act, and we're going to take away um, the guns from them. Okay, so that's not really what happens. Okay. Okay, but circling back, false report, false report. I went in. I was not homicidal. I was not suicidal. They tried to fabricate that in my record. They, they made a lot of mistakes in my record. And I actually, thank goodness, I'm extremely health literate. I requested a copy of my record and I read it. And I was like, holy crap, this is wrong. And I actually asked them to correct it and they refused. And um, what I ended up doing was adding a patient statement to my record. And it starts out by, let's see, by saying, (laughs) it's really actually pretty funny. I really like it. I, I, it's a bulleted list of all the things that are wrong and what actually should have been in there. Uh, It starts out by saying that, you know, I, I understand, you know, that, that you, that you believe this record 
is correct, right? And that basically, if they acknowledged that there were inaccuracies in my record, it puts them in a situation of liability. Correct. Right? Mm -hmm. So they're not willing to correct the falsehoods in my record. So I put a patient statement in there saying this, this chief complaint. So, okay, let me ask you, what do you understand a chief complaint to be? The thing that you say when you walk in the door and I say, what brings you in today? What comes right. out of your mouth is probably why you're there. That's the chief complaint. Now you can have other complaints below that. And an example might be, I'm here because I can't stop drinking. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about your life. Well, I'm also angry and I throw things and I get violent and it's like, okay, well maybe we negotiate through that and say, well, what is the real big problem here? But typically it's whatever they offer when you walk through the door. It's, we don't try to dig for things. Right. Right. It's what the person says brings them in for care. And there might be other things that come up in, in providing care. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's the reason somebody comes in. So, I went in for care because I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, and I was feeling distressed, right? What they wrote for a chief complaint was suicidal ideology. Ideation. Blatantly false. There is yeah. absolutely no conversation recorded in my record, and there no conversation occurred in which I stated any suicidal ideology. In fact, when they asked me, both to the physician an RN and a social worker, who, by the way, was training a social worker, right? Right. All three of them separately asked me if I had suicidal ideation, and I told all three of them no. And didn't, if, if my memory is correct, you said that they actually put that in the record, right? They said they no, no SI or no, you know, that's abbreviation for suicidal ideation. But then they right. went and put the chief complaint as suicidal ideation. They did. They put the chief complaint as suicidal so they, they contradicted their own statements. Which, right, which also didn't end up being the billable code because it, in fact, didn't exist. Correct. Um, so, right, so there's a, whole, there's a whole mess of problems with that visit record uh, that the institution refused to correct. And so I rectified it by adding a patient statement and I'm pretty sure severely annoying the medical records person that had to deal with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, the, the way New York works is, and this is part of their, their, their effort to streamline taking guns away. They want each hospital or large facility to have a point person that files these reports so that when you go there and you encounter multiple people during your visit or your stay, they don't get 20 reports on one person, mm -hmm. right? They just want one. So the social worker documented in my chart just like this on one line, no HI slash SI, period. Safe fact report filed, period. One line. Eight minutes later, the point person filed the report. So she documented there was no reason to file it. And then filed it anyway. And filed it anyway. Why did she do that? I believe it was, it had to be one of two things. Ignorance of her responsibility under the law or prejudice. I lean towards prejudice. Do you have a reason for that? I told her I own guns. And you think she just doesn't like them? Or she's being an I activist think, in a role or something? I think that a lot of people in 
healthcare professions and in the mental healthcare profession specifically see guns as a very negative thing. They see them as, I wouldn't say almost evil, right? They don't see that guns can be, as you were saying, an outlet for my, my sport is target shooting. And I feel accomplished and it's successful when I'm in a safe environment and I'm target shooting and hitting my target, right? They don't see that there are any positives. And part of that is that society in general, and I think New York specifically, has a hard time conveying that message and acknowledging that guns do play a positive role in a great many people's lives. You know, legal gun owners are not the problem right. with guns, mm-hmm. right? It's it's criminals and illegal gun owners that are the problem. Except for that one dude yet in Illinois who's vouched for him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yet the laws target the legal gun owners. Yeah, it's very, it, you know, going back on what you said, Sandy, it's like, I'm a big believer because I saw it firsthand because when I got into the firearms industry and I was a sales rep in the beginning and I was like traveling from city to city, I was so ignorant to the fact that people could judge you on the, on the, on basically the fact that you own firearms. Right. And I remember going, um, you know, going out, uh, going to bars, meeting people, uh, you know, I've told this story before, you know, thinking I'm, I may be meeting my future wife here. Like we're doing great. You know, 45 minutes into the conversation, she's like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, Oh, um, I work for a firearms importer and we bring firearms in the U S and it completely changing the course of the conversation to where visibly upset, almost blaming me for every negative outcome of guns. And I'm, you know, me being someone who didn't, no one ever told me when I got into the industry, Hey, you could be hated for what you do. You know, it was a, it was a huge eye opener. So to think that there's not people in these powerful positions that have that same feeling of the girl from Ohio State uh, that you know I ran into at that bar in Columbus, you know, it, we that's that's being naive, right? You know, well, and and if I may be a little bit devil's advocate here, uh, it's possible that that person who did your intake and wrote no SIHI report filed simply thought that. She had to file a report if you're an owner. And it was totally misunderstood, right? There's that possibility, which only indicates the need for more cultural competence training. That's that's why we have to get this stuff into the hands of healthcare practitioners so that they don't make those innocent mistakes that end up costing somebody their career in the case of Isaac or your time and effort and energy and your hobby in the case of you. And if it's not innocent, then... That's a whole different bag of problems that we got to deal with, uh, including licensing board complaints for unethical behavior, which you also dealt with and were found yep. found great dissatisfaction in doing. Yep, I'll get to that in a sec. But but yeah, so interestingly enough, the reporting standard according to New York State Office of Mixed Appeals and Safe Act, this is on their website. There's a PDF. I sent you guys the link to it. Um, the reporting standard is in Mental Hygiene Law 9.01 in New York State, and it says that there must be a substantial risk of physical harm to the person as manifested by threats of or attempts at suicide or serious bodily harm right. or other conduct demonstrating that the person is dangerous to himself or herself. And then this, the next section is, or a substantial risk of physical harm to other persons as manifested by 
homicidal or other violent behavior by which others are placed in reasonable fear of serious physical harm. These situations, in these situations, immediate action is needed to prevent harm. So that is coming directly from the Office of Mixed Appeals and Safe Act document, all right? So in my case, there was no threat or attempt at suicide or homicide at all. Right. There just simply wasn't. Let, so let alone a substantial one. What's that? Let alone a substantial oh, right. one. Yeah. 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 So the, the reporting standard was never met. And the other piece of this is, according to the reporting standard, the situation would have required immediate action to prevent harm. Not a, not a, not an entry into a database. That's not immediate action. So what happened was they said, okay, go on home now, call your doctor, see your doctor within a week, which of course I did because I'm about taking care of myself. And, (laughs) and five weeks later, I got a notice from the sheriff's office that they wanted my guns. Right? So there, there was no, you know, if there was a need for immediate action, an individual would be admitted. Yeah. Right. It, you'd be admitted to a facility. Right. In which case, there's no need to file a report anyway because you're away from you don't have access to your guns. Because you're you're safe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by the time you are released, you would have to be safe because if you were still suicidal or homicidal, they, they're not going to release you. Yep. Right. Right. So no, my it's my mind. There's no reason under those circumstances to file. So the law is really interesting. And I have so many things to say about this whole situation. And I don't know how much of them we'll get to today. But one of the things about this law um, is that in the beginning, it it lists, there are four parts to it. Uh, In the beginning, it lists the people who have to report. Um, I'm just flipping to the page where I have that. And they are registered nurses, social workers, psychologists, and physicians. Okay, if that's part A. Part B... It does, hold on. It, it does not list my people, marriage and family therapists, licensed professional counselors, nope. community health workers. For purposes, and, it's, it's a quote. I'm reading from the law. For the purposes of this section, the term mental health care professional shall include a physician, psychologist, registered nurse, or licensed clinical social worker. That's wow. It. Huh. So if you see an MFT, they're not actually compelled to report. Now, I'm wondering, could they if they wanted to? I don't think so, because I spoke to the way the reporting goes. It goes from the person goes online and fills out an electronic form. And then that goes through to it gets stored at the Office of Mental Health like forever. They have all of them ever filed, which I think is questionable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it goes to... um, the county director of community services. And I called my director of community services in my county. And I said, hey, this is what's going on. That was a false report. I want to understand your role in this. And what he told me was the report comes to him. He doesn't save it, store it, whatever. It comes to him electronically. He looks at it and checks to see if it's one of the four mandated reporters. Hmm. And if they wrote something that sounds reasonable uh, in, in terms of a reason to file a report. All right, so there's no second opinion. There's no check on the truth of the report, and he never actually sees the medical record. Wow. And then, and then if they meet those two criteria, it gets sent on to the next step. And I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure if. Uh, uh, well, anyway, the next step. 
And so it ends up that the, it goes to the State Department of Criminal Justice Services where they hit against the database and look to see if you have a handgun permit. If you have a handgun permit, you get a day in court because they're taking away your handgun, your physical possession, right? You're automatically given a day of court. If you don't already have a handgun permit, you're in that database as a person who is not permitted to own a firearm in the state of New York. You are never told. There's no mechanism to notify people. Your rights are rescinded. And if you happen to be somebody who owns long guns, because you can't, you can't own a handgun in New York without a permit. But mm -hmm. if you happen to own long guns, for which you don't need a permit for that, you're now a criminal because... For you to be in a database that says this person can't own guns and to own a gun, that's that's a problem. Right. It's a violation of the state law, but nobody's ever told you you were reported. There's no and there's no way to ever see the report. I've never seen my report. But even if they it's did, not. if they transmitted this information to you somehow, what are you supposed to do with them? There's there's issues of transfer, possession. There's Fourth Amendment issues if the government's trying to take it from you. There's issues of, you know, private sales that have to go through a process. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it just collapses in on its own weight. So structurally, it doesn't even work. Well, and, and yeah, my big problem with it is that they're turning people basically, I want to say on paper, right, mm -hmm. electronically, right? These people now that own long guns still and are in this database without their knowledge are going about their business thinking nothing's a problem. Well, what happens if somebody questions them? Right. Like, like right. what happens if if it comes up? And I don't know if it has. Um, they've never had the opportunity to challenge the report, which in my case was blatantly false. And I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen posts on Reddit and, and various places stating that reporting is false. Reporting is rampant. Reporting happens whether or not you are suicidal or homicidal because they can. And so going back to the sections of the, the, the law itself, it basically says you must report if blah, 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 right? Um, however, even though it says you must report this, it also goes on to say you don't have to report. All right. So section C says nothing in this section shall be construed to require a mental health care professional to take any action which in the exercise of reasonable professional judgment would endanger such mental health professional or increase the danger to a potential victim or victims. I, as a registered nurse with a master's degree in epidemiology who was a subject of a false report and has been digging into information for over two years now about this would argue that any report under this law should not be filed because the potential harm to hundreds of thousands of people who now will not seek care is far greater than the benefit of reporting a very small fraction of people who might be suicidal or homicidal. Correct. And we also have other laws in place that if somebody is, a, you know, if somebody is a risk of harm, 
there, there's other laws in place to to have them, you know, observed for a certain amount of time or to have, you know, involuntary commitments or stays or whatever, right? There, there's, mm-hmm. there's other things in place. This is not necessary. Right. It's not necessarily, but it does provide another path for restriction. And it won't help. Yes. And it probably well, causes harm. It, it causes lots of harm. Yeah. It causes lots and lots of harm. Um, and we can get into the numbers on that um, in, in a bit as we walk through this conversation. But yeah. basically, the law says you must report, but then it also says you don't have to report. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and just every time I listen to you or Isaac Ritchie, or I, I just think of how many people don't even know that they're out there that have just zero clue that they just had one of their rights restricted and they're walking around, you know. Totally oblivious. And and you found out, like Isaac found out, you went to go buy a gun. And you, right? Oh, I was, nope. Um, Isaac went to buy a gun. Um, and uh, well, I found out because I got a call from the sheriff's department. Oh, that's right. Because yeah, they yeah. wanted to take my gun. Right. 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 And so I, I gave them the gun that was listed on the order to show cause. And then I went to court. And as I told the guy I handed it off to, I said, this is ridiculous. This is just stupid. He's like, yeah, but we got to do this, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, whatever. And I came back and he, the guy gave it back to me. I said, look, I, I told you, this, this whole thing is stupid. This never should have happened. And he's like, I get it, you know? Um, but yeah, so how many people? You want to know how many people? I have that because you know I what? I do want to know how many people. Information. I spent a lot back. of time. Yep. Learning about how to file freedom of information law requests in the state of New York. And I chased some some paths that you know ended up being rabbit holes and going nowhere. Um, the unified court system has nothing that they can give people on this. Um, they don't hold records in a way that they could quantify anything. But the state office of mental health does. They have somewhere in the order of... 20,000 roughly reports a year. Oh my God. Since this began, right? Which is what, 2017? So, uh, 2013. 13, okay. Right. The Department, New York State Department of Criminal Justice Services, um, was able to provide me with the number of their database searches that they conducted, right? So they're, they're searching their database to see who has a handgun permit. The number of database searches that they did by year related to mental hygiene law 9.46 reporting, right? And so they only have five years of data. So the first year I have is an incomplete year because I asked like not on December 31st, right? Um, But on average across the years where I have full years of data, it's just over 18,000 reports a year. And they were able to tell me among those database searches, how many resulted in notification to the county. Because what they do is then they notify the county court system that this person has a handgun permit and has been reported. So you need to take away their permit, right? So 1% of all the reports get sent back to the county, which means 1% of the reported people have any idea they've been reported. Yeah, it's wild. I want to yeah. hear, I, I want to, because I'm a healthcare professional, I want to hear about the licensing board thing because 
if I falsify a document, that's sanctionable. Oh, so, okay, so let me be. go. Well, in New York, it's not. Let me go back to the law that I was quoting. So there's a piece in the law. It has four parts, and I kind of went through three of them. The last part is, is D, right? 9.46D. Um, the uh, yep. The decision of a mental health professional to disclose or not disclose in accordance with this section, when made reasonably and in good faith, shall not be the basis of any civil or criminal liability of such mental health professional. So what that do does is it strips the authority of the New York State Office of the Professions to hold these reporters accountable for professional misconduct. So in the state of New York, and I'm pretty sure probably in other states, filing a false report is professional misconduct. Failure to maintain an accurate record of a person's condition is professional misconduct. Um, inciting another person to file a false report is professional misconduct. And all three of those things happened in my case. All right, let's take a moment and pause right now and thank our sponsors, Ruger and Arms Corps. They are our two platinum sponsors. We would love to have more platinum sponsors, and you can get a shout out on this podcast as well. We really appreciate their support because they are some uh, pretty big heavy hitters in the industry. And when we have the backing of companies with such great reputations and uh, long-standing presence in the industry, we know that it will echo through to other people and give legitimacy to this guns and mental health thing that we're doing. So if you're, uh, if you're fans of Ruger and Rock Island Armor, uh, Armory and Ro Arms Corps, please reach out to them and give them thanks. Let them know that you heard their uh, support on here and give them your support by purchasing their products. And if you've never heard of them, check them out. You go to Ruger.com and ArmsCorps.com and find out what they have to offer and what they sell. We'll say that uh, I've shot some Arms Corps ammo. We recently had John McLean on, and uh, their ammo is fantastic. And Mike Sedini attests to them making some of the best 1911s on the planet. Personally, I can say for Ruger, I have owned a few Ruger firearms, including my uh, hand-me-down Mark I that I got from my dad, who got from his brother. Uh, and I also own a 1022 takedown model that I bought specifically for my children to learn how to shoot. And uh, it's been great. So thank you to those two companies. I really appreciate your support. And we here uh, continue to promote you the best that we can. If you'd like to sponsor the show, reach out to us, admin at wtta.org. And we will be happy to take your support in whatever form in which it may come. Now back to the show. And I filed professional misconduct complaints against the RN who actually reported it at the direction of the social worker, against the social worker, and against the RN who wrote the false chief complaint and other things that she put in there were wrong too. Um, it went through a full investigation. And you know, they have to remain neutral. The Office of the Professions has to remain neutral. But when I showed them everything and gave them this stack of papers that I actually printed out, I made copies and took it to them in person, they were like, oh my God, this never should have happened. And I'm like, that's why I'm here. 
They went through the full investigation with all of these people, went before the board. The board would not hold them accountable for professional misconduct. So this law, by the way it is written, the language of the law prevents mental health care professionals from being held accountable for misconduct and filing these reports. So why should anyone trust them? Would you go to a surgeon that couldn't be held accountable for his actions? I wouldn't no. even take a vaccine from a company that could. I'm sorry, that's a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, let me ask you a question though. So, do you think the board is just like is that an unwritten kind of like head nod agreement that they don't mess with? You see what I'm saying? Like, what's the motivation behind the board not taking any uh, action? It's it's you know it's a really good question. I personally they don't let me they don't let the complainant be part of the proceedings at all. Okay, but I believe that it is the language in the law that they were not able to hold them accountable because all they had to do was say, "I thought I was doing the right thing." Mm -hmm. My concern is with the actual medical record. Um, Let's set aside the gun thing for a minute. And just focus on the fact that you you walked in there for stress, that tagged you with suicidal ideation, and in the yep. same document said no suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. That's not a typo. That's not a, yeah. that's not a whoops. I my my habit is I never deal with suicidal people, so my default was no SIHI. I I brain farted. That's that's still inexcusable because at bare minimum it's neglect. You know it's it may, okay. Maybe it's not intentional. Maybe it's not maleficent. But you you screwed up. You know, go go take some extra continuing ed credits on how to document properly or listen with clear ears. But but at some level, that in and of itself, I mean, I can't. It's so unconscionable to to me. I, that would just never happen. I can't even. It would never happen unless you intentionally did it. There's no chance that would happen. Which is why I believe that it was done in prejudice. And there's because your I told I told them that I own a gun and that I enjoy hiking and hunting and fishing. And these are things that I do with my family members. We do together. It's a sense of community, you know, that sense of belonging. It's something you're enjoying with other people. It's, it's good for yeah. you, you know? Um, and in sharing that, I thought I was doing the right thing because that's something that, as you said, Jake, you want to know that about people because you want to encourage people to do things that, that, support their well-being yeah but what these people saw is this is a person who's really stressed out and she owns guns we need to take those away which That's, didn't even happen <laughs> well they took them away for four, for a few months yeah i mean like I in support. a timely enough fashion that it would matter right it, oh, it wouldn't have mattered yeah well that's no, what it, I, it, yeah yeah like if it, i had been if I had been intent on causing harm, five weeks would have been plenty of time. Exactly. And that's exactly, you know, going back to Isaac Ritchie, that was the funniest part. Remember, he's like two weeks later, they have me out with fully autos. And shooting rocket launchers. Shooting rocket launchers. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. Staggering. So. so there's another part to this, though, with regard to something I just learned before we started recording, which is that suicidal ideation is now in the ICD-10 book for 2023. And as you're showing it to me, because ICD-10 hasn't been re- released yet, or so I thought. <laughs> I mean, the 2023 uh, text revision, or whatever they call it. Uh, but it it was, in effect, October 1 of 2022. So we're recording this on the 13th of October 2022. 
And so this is two weeks old now. There is a billable code for suicidal ideation. It didn't exist when you were there. It does exist now, but take it from here, Sandy. <laughs> so, so this is the deal. When I when I sent a request for you know freedom of information law request to the Office of Mental Health, one of the things that I asked for was the number of reports filed by each type of provider, right? So there were four types of providers that can file these reports. And because I'm a data person, I put it into a graph, which I can't really show you on the podcast, but, you know, Jake and Mike have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what it shows us is that <clears throat> overall, since 2013 through 21, because those are all the years of data that I was able to get, 69.2% of the reports were filed by physicians. Okay, that's fine. That's good. A physician has the capacity to diagnose admit and treat the problem okay i'm fine with that and then it shows that psychologists 3.5 percent of reports all right i'm i know that they can diagnose and they can treat not sure if they can admit or not i'm not clear on that but pretty sure that they'd refer to somebody who could if it were necessary correct right social workers they filed 11.6 percent of reports um, and interestingly, over time, the number of reports filed by physicians has come down. The number of filed by uh, registered nurses and social workers has gone up. Um, but social workers, 11.6% of reports. In my case, it was a social worker. Social workers, they, they can diagnose, they can counsel, you know, to, to treat, right? Uh, as far as I know, they can't admit a person and they can't make like a, the, the medical piece of the diagnosis, Correct. right? Um, so my opinion, they should be referring, if they think there's a problem, they should not be reporting. They should be referring to somebody who can actually make the judgment on what is appropriate to do about it. If there truly is risk of harm, that person should be admitted. That's, that should not be turned back out onto the street. That's right. that's what I tell my students and my interns. And that's why I say every chance I get on a podcast, I'm going to say it here, um, or an interview or a training, any, anywhere I get to speak on this, I say, ethically, our first line of intervention, if you're that critically dangerous to self or others, is not to take your property. It's to get you to a higher level of care. So you can be treated, so you can be well, not to take your stuff that doesn't make any sense but it's also highly unethical and it leapfrogs the the level of intervention we want to go least intrusive intervention first failing that then we level up so if you're in my office and we're doing talk therapy which is in my mind the least intrusive level of intervention we might try medication next then we might try multiple contacts per week then we might try an intensive outpatient program we don't leapfrog to inpatient hospitalization unless it's critical like it's super acute um nowhere in that ladder is call the deputies and steal your stuff like it doesn't it doesn't even make sense um because right. what are you going to do take all the harmful stuff no, no, we're just going to take the scary shaped ones. <laughs> like, no, that's not a thing. So I try to say that as often as possible. What what we should be doing is exactly what you say, higher level of care, not exactly. move to take your property. Exactly. But exactly. please go on. Yep. And so in in this graph about the, you know, the, the reporting providers, registered nurses on average from 2013 to 2021 filed 15.7% of the reports. 
So registered nurses cannot admit people. They cannot make a medical diagnosis. Um, they can talk to people, right? They, they can do that, but they should be referring to somebody who has the authority to actually take care of the person if they feel there's a risk of harm, mm -hmm. right? That higher level of care. And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is, you know, to these providers, your duty is to file a report with the state. And then it's okay if you just let the person walk out the door because you filed the report. And we're not going to hold you accountable for what harm you have done to that person and to the rest of the population by virtue of creating a barrier to care. So basically, every one of these reports filed where no one can be held accountable is another brick in the wall that is the barrier to mental health care in New York State. You it makes the barrier stronger. I'm going to get into the numbers in a second, but but to put a bow on this, and this is going to get a little into the weeds, so bear with me, because um, I didn't understand that literally until just before we started recording, and it literally didn't happen until two weeks ago. But here's the bigger problem, and I really appreciate you bringing this to my attention because this has long-reaching implications if I'm interpreting it correctly, and maybe somebody can correct me on this because, I, again, I just learned about this. My, my initial conclusion is, uh-oh. So... For years and years, suicide offices of states across the country, uh, health and human services departments, uh, nonprofit organizations like NAMI and American Foundation for Suicide Prevention have been training lay people to identify and intervene when someone is presenting with suicidal ideation. And suicidal ideation is a spectrum. There's a, there's a low end and then a high acute end. And I, I try to scale this from a zero to 10. If I'm talking to somebody who's some ideation, like a child in a school, perhaps, because we do a lot of that. And there's a lot of training going out for signs of suicide screenings in the K-12 setting. Okay, so these are lay people. They're not practice practitioners. They don't have a license to treat, diagnose, et cetera. Um, we screen them and we go on a scale of zero to 10. Where are you? Zero being no ideation whatsoever. Your life is perfect. Everything is going fine. We want to make it extreme when we do that because nobody's going to pick my life is perfect. That, <laughs> it's pretty hard to do. And then we go up to the other extreme, which is you're so acutely suicidal that as soon as this conversation is over and you're out of my sight, you are going to walk into traffic. Uh, so we, we scale it that way and then they pick a number and we, we work from there, right? Okay, so we've trained all these people. Millions of people across the country now have some basic level of suicidal intervention strategy. It, we were allowed to do that because it's not a diagnostic code. Now it is. <laughs> now, it's, now it's within practice scope, and you have to have a license to diagnose things. Imagine if for years and years we were training people to uh, be sort of savvy about, you know, uh, some other diagnostic code like cancer screenings. It's like, well, can you self-screen? Not without appropriate tools, right? Uh, how do you have access to those tools? Well, usually you have some medical license that gives you access to them. And then there's prescription power too. You can prescribe things to treat things. Now that it's in the diagnostic code, I'm very concerned that we have inadvertently put a whole bunch of people into a position of practicing without a license. Am I wrong? You're a registered nurse. You got a master's degree. You've been doing this longer than I have. What do you What do you think? <laughs> I'd be pretty concerned about that too. And I think it's going to depend how the states write their laws, right? If they write them so that people can do this with with no liability, with you know, then they're going to allow it, right? So, 
I don't know. It's what New York State has done in the way they wrote this particular law is they wrote it so the reporter can't be held accountable mm-hmm. if at all, right? So that they're acting with impunity as accuser, judge, and jury to revoke rights without notification or due process. And that's the same thing that would potentially be happening in, in other situations you're talking about. You're letting somebody do something beyond the, that that's within it's reserved, the scope of practice of a people. licensed yep. professional, right? And they're going to be doing it with impunity. Yeah. And, and that's a problem. Well, it's a, it's a problem twofold. One is that it can have a chilling effect on those who would otherwise be intervening to save people and do positive things in the community. And the flip side of that is it could have vast consequences for people who want to overreach and interfere with people's lives and without consequence. So I'm very, very concerned um, about how this is going to play out. And I don't know that anybody knows this because it just happened. I mean, I wonder if, if so like your example of what happened to you, um, you know, there's a, you were able, they, they messed with the wrong person, right? You, you had the ability to go in and, and really kind of get your rights back and everything like that. But I wonder if the New York Safe Act, and I have to look into it, uses her instance as a statistic that's pro New York Safe Act, right? Like they're going around saying, we stopped X amount of people from taking their lives. It'd be really interesting to see because that gives somebody the uh, the reason to keep putting these numbers up too, right? Because right. you want to show data that um, says it's this quote is... quote-unquote working. Right. It's yeah. working, right? The, the... Well, it, yeah, to, to respond to that, Mike, um, in the requests that I was making for data and information from the state offices, I did ask whether or not the outcome of of the database search and any court action was attached to the records that are held at the Office of Mental Health, and it is not. The Office of Mental Health, who holds all of the thousands of records that have ever been filed under Mental Health Law 9.46, has no idea if those reports are true. And for the ones who did make it to court, if the reports were upheld or overturned. In my case, it was overturned. They have no idea. So they'll look at it as, well, we have this many reports. We you know, rescinded the rights of, of you know, this number of people. Aren't we doing a good job? Mm-hmm. And when in fact, that's not true, because a lot of them are probably false reports. And they have no idea in that one percent who gets a day in court, how many were overturned. And I have no idea either. There's no I haven't found a way to find that information. Yeah, that's always been my concern because um, I obviously Jake and I are parts of uh, the many meetings with many different walks of life when it comes to these things. And when I hear someone say like our red flag laws in Connecticut stopped this amount of you know tragedies, and I'm like, how did you get that information? Did the person actually tell you like, thank God you stopped me? Because I'm sure there are some people that admit yeah. like I was going to do that, right? But I, I think there's a lot of jump to conclusions on on things. Well, it's politically expedient to do that because it, it substantiates the thing that the politician did. And then they can go out to the street and pound the pavement for more money to get reelected and retain office and all that stuff. So it justifies mm-hmm. the means. But um, the it, with your example there with Connecticut, for example, because uh, I think they have the oldest red flag law, uh, 2009, I believe, is when that one was, was in 
enacted, uh, their firearm suicide rate went down. And they're very proud of that. The problem is their overall suicide rate went up. So they did they do anything? Right. I don't know. Um, did it just shift to another means because now people are not interested in going and getting care for all the reasons we've laid out. And instead they hermitized and ended up taking their life some other way because they simply didn't get care. And that's our concern. We're putting up barriers to care and we can shift now to this paper that you sent across from the, uh, I'm going to alt tab over to, so it's from the psych, from psychiatric quarterly. It um, is. And it's available online and it's entitled the influence of New York safe act on individuals seeking mental health treatment. So they surveyed some people and before we get into the numbers, I want to talk about what you sent over. So I'm just going to round these to the nearest hundred thousand for, you know, uh, sake sure. of clarity, New York state population, 18 years old and up. So that would be all the people who would qualify to own a firearm in New York state, long gun or handgun, etc. 16 million, approximately 20% of those are presumed to own guns. That would be 3.2 million. Now this paper surveyed a couple hundred people it was 300 and something, but they had a 71 and a half percent response rate. So they got 228 that actually completed their questionnaires these people were pulled from mental health facilities, two of them, one in upstate New York, one in lower Hudson. Clinics, right? Yep, clinics. Yeah. So they yeah. pulled people who are in clinics to answer this questionnaire about how concerned they are about reporting being reported to county government. Here's the results. 18% were concerned. 9% would be less likely to seek mental health treatment. And 23% would be less willing to report mental health symptoms and behaviors. Okay, 9%, if we use their number, of gun owners is 288,000 people, which, per your number crunching, is 16 times higher than the actual number of reports, which is a yep. lot of harm. Using your words, that's a lot of harm being caused by this law because those that 288,000 people are not seeking care because they're afraid of having their rights stricken. Here's my problem with the survey and the questionnaire. I think it's a bad study because you have a sampling bias problem. They already picked people who are in, they picked people who are already in care. So they already got there. They weren't concerned. If you replicated that survey to the broader population of firearms owners, my suspicion is that number, that 9% wouldn't be 9%. It'd be more like 89% or something much, much higher, which now approaches closer to 3 million people who aren't going to get care because they don't want to lose their rights. And if you take rights out of it and pretend we don't have a Second Amendment that protects those rights and so forth, and we just say, well, it's just a hobby, you're killing their hobby. Wait, that's a protective factor, as we kicked off the show talking about. You really want 3 million people not seeking care, which, by the way, that, that 20% is probably a low estimate because we don't really know how many people in firearms because we don't have a registry, which we don't want for a whole bunch of reasons. But we'll just use it. That's 3 million people out of 16 million. You want 20% of your state's population avoiding care and potentially going on to more harm, not even leveling up to the to suicide or homicide. That's the extreme end, right, where lives are actually being taken. But let's talk about failed marriages, bad parenting, uh, bullying on the playground, anything that prevents parents from getting their kids in, because that's just the 18 and over people. It's not. It doesn't stop there. It stops at the under 18. If, if I, as a parent who's a gun owner in New York, 
and I have a problematic child in school who maybe just has a learning disability and I want to get it figured out, but upon the intake and assessment, I'm going to have to acknowledge that I own guns and then I'm going to be entered into some database because my kid is anxious at school or uh, suffered some bullying or uh, sexual molestation or domestic violence or the list goes on and on and on. I'm just not going to get care. We're never going to see those numbers reported on suicides alone. We're, we're not going to see them anywhere. But we know that people are suffering and in misery and not getting help simply because this stupid, godforsaken, uncritically thought law got passed and rammed down people's throats. It's despicable. All under the auspices of, and I can't believe they had the audacity to use an acronym called SAFE. It's the not so safe app. <laughs> the not so safe app. So I'm going to jump off my soapbox here and let you guys talk because I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the one of the take homes um, from that that research paper for me was that yes, it, it was a small sample, and it's difficult to draw conclusions from small, small samples. So this does need to be replicated and it does need to be replicated among gun owners in new york state so who are not in care who are not in care um yes but the other piece of it is that only 10 percent of the people in this study said that they own a gun where we know mm -hmm. you know the, the statistics that you can find out there say that it's somewhere around 20 to 30 percent right so if only 10 percent of the people here are saying that they own guns it's either because gun owners are not seeking care at the same rate as everybody else right. or because the people in the study are lying to the providers which correct is, yeah well and uh, the study i continually cite which and i'm sure is well outdated now from 2017 because we had a huge buying spree from 2020 to present uh and oh by the way over the last 12 months i just read a report that um one million new gun sales were executed over the last 12 months consecutively uh, that's like remarkable and eye popping. But in this Pew research poll from 2017, it said that 42% of Americans either own a gun or live with somebody who does. So is this just about gun owners or is it anybody who has access, which is a much larger population? That would be all the children. Uh, that would be the spouses who aren't on the list of owning it, but they're there. So we can reasonably double that. You know, so that's why that number is much, much higher than it is. And that's why this is such a critical issue. When you're sending a meta message to the population, hey, don't go seek care because you or someone you love might lose access to the thing that they enjoy, not to mention the right, right? The right to own it and defend and all that thing, all that stuff. We're crippling our country. We're crippling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This law is in, in my words, right? And I. And I forgot my disclaimer at the beginning that what I'm talking about today, these are my opinions, my thoughts, and I'm not representing any employer or organization or anybody else. This is just me, Sandy Richardson, right? That's my disclaimer. Um, but, but yeah, this law, in my opinion, is a public health nightmare mm -hmm. because it has built a massive barrier to mental health care for people, not just gun owners but for people, right? It has created a space where no one in the state of New York should trust any one of the four reporters under this law. Yeah, I know I don't. And, and you know, I went in for care, at, you know, as you were saying before, Mike, you know, I was being, I was naive. I, you know, grew up through my life 
you know, that I'm older adult now, but you know, through my entire life, believing in healthcare, believing in getting the care that you need at a particular time for whatever the reason might be. And that that's a very good thing. When I did that and I found that this was happening, I went, oh my God, I can't trust healthcare providers. And that, it really, it, it took me on a spin because that is so contrary to everything I have ever believed for all of the years of my life. But it's a fact and it's a truth that because of this law, no one can trust these providers because they cannot be held accountable. It's they don't have to follow the reporting standard. They can still report you and there is no repercussion at all. Yeah. It's too bad. Uh, it's too it's, bad. It's very sad. And what, what's really unfortunate is you can say, all right, it's, it's limited to New York, but it's not because you, I mean, I'm checking the clock here. We're an hour and two minutes into this conversation. We've already had an hour and a half conversation before, and we got really nitty gritty. And you've spent countless hours across many months digging into this stuff. I study policy and seminal documents out of hobby, uh, sometimes out of necessity. And the average person just doesn't know that the nuances. So they hear New York Safe Act has impacted Sandy and Isaac and uh, the gun grabbers and healthcare professionals can't be trusted. And they go, well, that's, that's New York. But then they see their own state pass a red flag law and they go, well, that's just a different name for the same thing. And they don't want to, they don't, they, they extrapolate and they generalize to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to go see Jake at Zephyr because Jake at Zephyr is one of those people in a state, Nevada, that has a red flag law. And even if you want to try to try to do the right thing, say, I want to get the guns out of my house in the time of crisis or or not even a time of crisis, just I'm going on deployment and I don't want my kids to have access or whatever. Um, they can't hand them over because we also have a stupid background check loophole, which never was a thing in the first place, law that prevents transferring to a trusted person without a background check, which is expensive and time consuming and not to mention the space issues. We can't even do the right thing because dot gov has pigeonholed us and in a in a profession that's already scrapping for credibility as it is we can't afford to lose anymore and that's where mm -hmm. we are mm -hmm. you know so it's interesting one of one of the statistics that i came up with with digging into to numbers that are publicly available is that these mental health law reports in in uh, new york state if they're accurate which we know that there are many many false reports but let's assume that they were all substantiated. It's only catching about two and a half percent of its targeted population of suicidal homicidal people, right? right? And so I pulled those numbers from the census, right? New York census, the number of, of adults and the number of adults who would be expected to report thoughts of suicide that's available um, state of mental health America. And, and, you know, extrapolating that out, it literally would only catch two and a half percent of its targeted people, if the reports were correct, we know that that percentage is lower because the reports are oftentimes false, right? But it is at the same time that it's failing to identify the people that it's targeting, it is preventing hundreds of thousands of people from seeking care. Yep. That is the definition of a harmful policy. What do we it, do? It's not, it's not meeting its objective. 
and it is hurting people. What, what do we do? You know, we get yeah, so three hundred people really podcast to listen to this. That's that's not needle moving, right? We, we need like professional associations to get behind this or something. But we do. They don't seem yeah, to be interested. I, they, yeah. They, the, the other the other thing I want to bring up about this, you know, just toss it in the ring, is in my my personal opinion, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've been doing a lot of reading, is that that this law and how it is implemented by the state of the New York by the state of New York. Um, it, it violates federal civil rights code, right? So that the criminal statutes under federal code 18, 242 and 241, it, it, it's conspiracy against rights and deprivation of rights under color of the law. Hmm. And, uh, you know, all of this information is available online for anybody who wants to read it. But basically, deprivation of rights under color of the law makes it a crime for a person acting under the color of the law to willfully deprive a person of a right or privilege protected by the Constitution or laws of the United States. So what we have is the Department of Criminal Justice Services under this law, Mental Hygiene Law 9.46, depriving 18,000 people a year of their Second Amendment right, their 14th Amendment right to due process, right? Mm -hmm. No notification, making some of them criminals. So they're depriving them under the Sixth Amendment, the mm -hmm. right to, you know, know their accuser process, and yeah. what they're being accused of and, you know, get representation. I believe the state of New York is committing a federal crime by the way that they are implementing this law and using the information. I, I totally agree. I, I totally agree. And I would throw in the fourth amendment there too, because you, you, you lose your property without due process along the way. And we could loosely maybe put in speech and expression in there too, as a first amendment issue, simply mm -hmm. because you're self-censoring. And if I have a social media post that shows me shooting guns or something, and maybe uh, some activist clinician decides to look me mm -hmm. up online and see if I'm lying on my intake form, uh, that that could tread into First Amendment. So there's a there's a, and again, I'm not a, I'm not an attorney, and Fourteenth Amendment extends the due process from the federal government to the states, right? So we're we're correct in that as far as I understand it. So maybe the the act the action at this point is lawsuits. You know, you have to we have to get somebody to file lawsuits, and I'm not an attorney, and I and attorneys are very expensive. Somebody somewhere has to challenge this on those grounds. Because the, the numbers obviously aren't interesting to people. They're not, you know, whoever the lawmakers are like, well, whatever, 18,000 people are deprived of their rights, but, oh, we saved six. You're like, did you though? Like, <laughs> and is that, is that really, is that really worth the exchange? If we're, if we're doing the little balance scales, like, yeah, maybe you saved six people's lives because they would have taken them, but there's 288,000 who are not seeking care. Do, are we tracking that outcome? No, we're not. Right. We're cherry picking data for our own purposes. So uh, this exactly. this this is a more robust conversation that has to happen if we're going to continue having laws like this on the books. And then as a society, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and get very honest and say, yes, it's worth it. <laughs> like, uh, oh, okay, well, <laughs> that's a weird conclusion to draw. Uh, it's worth mm -hmm. it to keep people from care if we can willfully <laughs> strong arm a handful into staying alive. A little longer, yeah. you know. I don't. I don't know if that's a conversation people are interested in having. Um, 
Well, yeah. you know, it, it's interesting because I, I, I talked to um, to Isaac Ritchie. You know, we, we connected after I listened to his podcast. And, and he and I both tried to take our story to the media. The media doesn't want it. Not interested. The, the media is not interested in the fact that New York State has a law that is depriving thousands of people of rights every year with you know with no due process they don't want to hear it, it it's not you know it's not the message not that they yeah it's not the message that they that they it's too vanilla right it's, yep. it's plain it's not it's not explosive enough for them but it's they really need to look at the harm that this law is doing overall and then think about harm reduction right if they're harming well over 200,000 people a year by making care inaccessible. That that harm is is far greater than what they're going to gain by filing the reports, right? If you know, be, and because there are already laws in place that if somebody really is harmful, they'll be admitted. Yeah. Sometimes against their will. Yeah, it's redundant. And so that's already taken care of. This law is not necessary because there are already other things on the books that address it. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. There's a lot to say about this, um, but really appreciate your time. Uh, these days, because it's been a, been a while, um, how are you tending to your mental health? I knew you were going to ask that because I've listened to some of the podcasts that I was on before and, and I don't, I don't know if the viewers can see it, but this time I came prepared. So this is a really awesome book. It's called mind easing. It's by Dick Wank. And I tagged the page, right? So this is my page mm -hmm. and it's like a, you know, a, a fake prescription pad. They don't use prescription pads anymore. It's all electronic. But on page 118, it talks, it talks about the prescription meds. And that stands for mindfulness. So I meditate. Okay. That's E. M. E is exercise. I try to make sure I exercise. Don't hit every day. But I hit most days. At least I get some kind of exercise. Uh, diet. I try and watch what I eat. Try and eat a health, healthful diet. Don't hit it every day. But I do a pretty good job. And stress management is S. Right? So... I watch my stress level and what I have discovered about myself, and this is just kind of funny for those people listening who also find themselves eating a lot of chocolate. When I'm eating a lot of chocolate or going after nuts, I now understand that I am craving magnesium. Those foods are very high in magnesium. Magnesium huh. is depleted when you're stressed. Hmm. Something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter's a registered dietitian. Um, <laughs> Good resource. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I follow this, and I find that in terms of stress management, um, I have had to become much better at setting boundaries on my time and energy and resources. Right. So early in the pandemic, when I was super stressed, I was working a lot of hours. There were some nights that I was working till three or four in the morning. Right. Because mm -hmm. In my field, the pandemic was a huge problem and mm -hmm. there was a lot of work to be done. You know, I I clocked out one weekend early in the pandemic, Friday afternoon. I'm like, all right, Friday afternoon, it's a weekend, I'm off, right? 
went about my business. Monday morning, my boss was like, where were you? We couldn't reach you. I was like, awesome. didn't know <laughs> you needed me for anything. But, you know, because of the circumstance, I guess they thought that I'd be available over the weekend. But but anyway, so I'm, I'm much better at, at setting those kinds of boundaries and just telling people, no, sorry, not going to do that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Sandy, I can't thank you enough. Um, you know, we talked about energy earlier and how some people are super into a cause and they have this high energy and then they just fizzle out. Thank God you have not fizzled out. Like I oh, love I'm still that, going. Yeah, I love that we're here still now, like on this second podcast. You know, it's been over a year, yeah. right? Um and now we're starting to get other people coming forward because of your story, right? Isaac had found your story. Um, I, thank you. You know, thank you for not quitting on this. Thank you for saying like this is bigger than just me, because you did get your you, you did get your rights restored, and you haven't quit. You know, right, right. I did get my rights restored, and and I know that there are other people who've had their rights restored who just sort of don't want their story to be public, and I respect that. Um. Yeah, but I feel because of my background and experience that I can use my skill set to help gather information to inform people about the harm that's happening because of laws like this. Good on you for doing that. We need more Sandys in the world. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you. And um, we're going to go fill our bellies because we haven't eaten in like six hours. Uh, <laughs> let's appreciate you. Yeah, let's talk about some new sponsors. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we do the drop in. People should have already heard that. But in closing, uh, we want to thank Arms Corps and Rock Island Armory. They've been with us for a really long time. And Ruger. Talk about Ruger a little bit. Ruger. Uh, Ruger Firearms is on board. Uh, Chattanooga Shooting Sports Supply. Yeah. Which is a distributor, mm-hmm. which to me, that's that's amazing. Because the distributor is like a silent person yeah. in the process of gun ownership, right? Yeah. Um, and then also USCCA. USCCA has uh, come on and uh, we're very, very proud to be partnering with them in some endeavors moving forward that will become more public here in about a month. Yeah, so th- this is uh, all going in the right direction, Sandy, even though sometimes things seem dark. And, you know, we talk about how do we make this change is, is you know, from year 2018 to now, what I've seen with Walk Talk America, we're, we're not only going to have a seat at the table, but, you know, we have support and people are starting to realize that these stories need to come to light and uh, we can get it there. We have polo shirts now. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly on behalf of all our supporters and uh, our Walk the Talk America family, my company Zephyr Wellness. It's uh, been willing to, willing to go along with the, the bold moves that we've been making. We thank you all for listening and appreciate your time. Share this around and we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. I was just waiting to make it awkward.